Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Unconventional Soldier, a military podcast brought to you by two British Army veterans in association with ISAR.com. Welcome, everyone, and thanks for downloading another episode of the podcast. Our guest today is Adam Lyle Sterling, who serves as an infantryman in the British Army from 2001 to 2012. First and second Princess of Wales Royal Regiment, then in first Royal Irish Regiment. Adam completed op tours in Northern Ireland, Iraq and Afghanistan, finishes his service as a sergeant. And on this podcast, we're going to be talking about one of Royal Irish's tour of Afghanistan in 2010. So it's great to have you in the pod, Adam. And can you start off by telling us what made you join the army, why the infantry and why two PWRR? Hey guys. Um, well, firstly, thanks for uh, thanks for having me on as a guest. It's, it's an honour to be to be with you guys today, especially with some of the podcasts I've listened to from people over the years who've served. So, really, for myself, uh, I was seventeen. I was living in Bognor Regis. I was going to uh, Chichester College. I was studying to be a chef. Kind of a little bit lost in life, following my mum's footsteps. Um, and really, for me, I was sort of very disinterested. So um, I decided I wanted to get a job and I ended up actually in the careers office. And there was this was back in the day in the nine in sorry, in the early 2000s when they had the the boards on the wall with the, the, the little crib cards, if you guys remember them at all. And on there, there was this little printed out card about the army and there was the basic wage on there. And that was my initial interest with I think it was 16K a year or something. I'm not sure. I can't really remember. But yes, so I spoke to a lady. Ended up in Chichester um, careers office with my mum after a few arguments with her. She tried to steer me away from it, but I was completely inset- in- intent on doing it. Um, and then I met, a, I met a sergeant, a recruitment sergeant from PWRR, and he kind of explained to me, as they do, they used to get a cartoon out in the day in front of young teenagers and say, listen, this is what the army does and break it down from back to front on the battlefield. Um, and I just said, Infantry sounds like it's my bag. So yeah. Is there so, any um, family history of the army? 
my great grandfather served in the First World War in the uh, as a captain in the Argyle Southern Highlands. I believe he was in the Battle of the Somme. But yeah, that's it in terms of family history in the military. So yeah, I joined in 2001, training, passed out December 2002 from Catrick, and ended up sort of in a rifle company, A Company. I enjoyed it. It was it was fun, but there was I wanted something more. Um, and I remember going out to see a demo on the back training area of the recce guys um, in an OP doing contact drills etc and this was really the beginning of my love for for recce and my career in the army and through most of my army career I ended up back in the recce platoon at one rank or another until I left a couple of tours in Northern Ireland there was a six-month tour down in Portadown and then out into Besbrook Mill. I don't know if you guys remember Besbrook Mill, Mill from your yeah. service at yeah, all. Yeah, Besbrook Mill. Yeah, <laughs> sleeping in that QRF hut next to the HLS or trying to sleep next to the HLS. So you had a hut. Yeah, yeah, well, kind of. <laughs> we used to actually, so whenever the new guys came to the platoon we'd, and we were going out on a helicopter patrol, you, you might have done this, we used to give the um, RAF helicopter pilots notes with some particular choice words on them about what we thought about the abilities of RAF pilots. And we'd soon sort of take off and cover the grounds in more of a tactical pursuit towards the the first drop off and you'd see people throwing up in the back of the helicopter which was quite fun but that was kind of what we got up to really um it was a good a good tour a good experience i think you learn a lot on your northern ireland tours and it's stuff that really transcended through to what we've done on later operations in iraq and afghanistan which we'll come on to later um but yeah then an iraq tour which was sort of based out of Shiba Log Base and then up into Baghdad as well, which was interesting to get up there and see that and work with the Americans out of Camp Victory doing sort of your, on more of a PSD uh, deployment to two armoured vehicles taking the generals about from Camp Victory up to the green zone and back on daily runs. Is that a significant change of pace compared to Basra at the time, Adam? The, the sort of the... Yeah, I mean, it was very, let's put it this way, Basra is out on the ground constantly gda patrols convoy force protection um or you would to do with the prison so there's a lot of guard in the prisoners so that unit was de- dedicated to those roles and then the guard of shiba log base so you were you were at it all the time when we went up to baghdad it was pretty much a couple of runs a day and that was it hit the gym and there was a bit there was a bit of a social scene up there as well with the brit house uh, and all the brigade brigadiers would go in there and there'd be this fridge full of beer that suddenly got stuck up all the time and you'd look around and see all the brigadiers and colonels drinking a beer and they'd go go on have one and then yeah it kind of was quite an eventful little house let's just say that i won't say too much (laughs) but a good time was had and then um also then sorry northern ireland on a residential 2005 to 2008 and then within that tour i decided to complete the cop platoon course um so i was in cop for just shy of two years which was great which is kind of again pretty much you guys will probably know of it but similar to that of reconnaissance platoon working in small units um doing operations can't really go into much detail on the operations because of the, the secrets act and such but you know it is very high level stuff um we were working with some pretty specialist agencies as well supporting them and that really gave me a wider look at the bigger picture just um, for our uh, non-military listeners adam the cop that adam's referring to is close observation yeah, platoon that's and it's one. a specialist skill applicable to Northern Ireland. The course actually uh, in Lidenhive, even though there's no hills there, it's probably one of the most arduous courses I've done in terms of fitness. There's a, there's a particular eight miler that involves a lot of shingle and stretches and bergens. That's um, I probably still have nightmares about that one, to be honest. But as a team leader, it was it was a good course. And I really learned a lot about being a commander at a, at a lower level with a smaller unit in that period. And then junior Brecon, 
as well, which was great. I enjoyed that. But the more the course I enjoyed the most was Senior Brecon, really, because I'd spent two years before that as a section commander training recruits at Catrick, um, taking them from day one to the end of the six month training process, punching them out ready to go to the units. And that was really rewarding, taking these guys in and teaching them everything to sort of enable them, be at the base level required, let's say, to get to their infantry units um, and be be an asset to them and then obviously you guys know yourself you're at the base level you get into your unit you do further training um you go off into maybe a rifle company or later in the stage they'll go off into support companies whether it's machine guns javelin recce snipers whatever and yeah then as i said senior brecon was the best course for me i loved tactics um i was really fit at the time i was training for to go on selection so my mind was focused on that and that's that and being it i would say for junior ncos who spent two years at catrick where you're continuously going through the process of section attacks platoon attacks company attacks day in day out and you go on senior brecon straight from there um i found that i was very fit but i was also able to do the course i wouldn't say it was easy but i just found the command appointments where they were it was there was a natural flow that I, that I saw a lot of the other NCOs that had done time at Catrick sort of had had in them as well. That's, then, that's about three months long, is it, Adam? Yeah, uh, yeah, it's three months long, Senior Brecon. So you've got your tactics course before, and then you've got the uh, live firing course before, so you can become a range controlling officer to do like live fire and maneuver on the ranges right the way up to platoon attacks and stuff like that. So that it's yeah, it's a great course, um, and it's kind of the the foundation of. of getting the base level for what a great platoon sergeant should be within any infantry regiment i would say if you can administrate yourself in a platoon in a wood block on the side of a hill that's pretty much acting as a windsock with sideways rain and you are hating your life then you could administrate a platoon anywhere in the world on any battlefield i would say it prepares you for everything and then yeah to sort of the royal irish at that stage and basically um i decided at catrick that i wanted to transfer and i wanted to go to the royal irish there was a family tie there with, with my family coming from ireland and there was also a sort of a relationship situation with a previous wife and it geographically it just fitted perfectly for what i was looking for and the regiment were going on an operational tour which i wanted to be a part of as well so i kind of put in my application and got accepted and went to the royal irish pretty much straight from senior brecon after catrick did you go as a sergeant or a corporal? yeah i got promoted on transferred across uh, while i was on senior brecon and then i got promoted to sergeant the uh, the battalion rco called me up at the first week of the um the rangers course after we'd finished tactics and just said look you've been promoted to sergeant basically which is great and gave me a slot within the recce platoon as one of the one of the two sergeants so you normally have as you guys remember you have two platoon sergeants within reconnaissance platoon um a color sergeant who would be the second in command under a captain and then a a multitude of corporals as team commanders Um, treading on some toes there a bit you not so much i mean i went to do the pre-seniors course with the royal irish actually from catrick um and i kind of rocked up and everyone was a bit like who's this guy but i you know i was in the top two on on pre-seniors yeah. cleansed it with another guy called Danny um, who became a really good mate of mine actually Danny we went through seniors together we did the tours together we you know we went on selection together and stuff so and they're a really great unit and a, fa- a family orientated unit and I was really welcomed into the regiment um, with open arms and, and looked after definitely did you find it very different from PWRR the character of the regiment I would say for sure definitely because they're a bit more let's say 
the Royal Irish are a very professional, highly experienced unit. You know, they've done operations like Telic One. They were there across the border, went right the way through. Some of the guys went right the way up to Baghdad. Then they've done three almost back-to-back tours of Herrick, everything that happened before that as well. So the regiment is very very experienced operationally there's a high level of maturity within that regiment but there's also um there you know they're a mixture of sort of the irish the northern irish manchester liverpool brummy it's almost how hard to describe it it's a kind of a little bit boisterous in there but in a in a good way it's hard to describe it if you're not part of it it's very different i heard uh, there was a video recording of an american uh, sergeant um and they you know they said to him like one question of this interview they had they said who's the craziest soldiers you've ever served with and he said hands down the royal irish regiment (laughs) without a shadow of doubt those guys are lunatics like you know so but it showed you know it showed on on the beer definitely but it also showed on the battlefield they they got it done from right the way down to the youngest the youngest ranger within the regiment and i think you know this probably leads us on quite nicely to to talking about that tour actually have you guys got any questions before before we move into that. Yeah, yeah, you, you wrote to us ask, to ask us to come on as a guest and the phrase you used was you wanted to tell a unit story. Yeah, So definitely. why was that so important to you? Um, so the tour, you know, the intensity of the tour for me and for the guys that, that were under me and for the guys and quite, you know, across the company that we were attached to, which is B Company and the wider regiment, I would say, something that wasn't documented so well, I would say, or shown back here nobody really knew what we went through i mean we had press come out and in bed with us when we were back in bastion about to go and leave but it was it was not really a proper um overview sort of given to anyone back home and i think after the tour having having the regiment itself you know has had multiple uh people take their lives since that tour ptsd me personally uh, andy my point man took his life in 2016 um, and that really hit me hard and it hit the guys hard as well and you know during the tour as as well i had to Kaz- i'll come on to it in more detail when i talk about the actual operations side of it but there was, i had to kazivak guys for mental trauma during the tour because of the how kinetic it was and how much we were under the cosh in terms of enemy action against us both in and out of the compound it just destroyed the mental capability of people um well, it's and- funny you should say about that adam because at the start of the podcast we were talking offline i was saying that i was working out there as a contractor for a, a, an airspace company and i was coming back on a flight and i met the padre who was the padre of my old regiment were delayed as you normally get and i sat talking to him and he was telling me his part as a padre and the, the strain on him having to deal with a load of guys who are undergoing those mental pressures that you're talking about, yeah. guys that didn't want to go on patrol, um, and he's sitting there giving them sort of, not spiritual guidance, but he was somebody they could offload on without fear of MDLs finding out about it. And it was a huge strain on him when you, you could tell it, you could see it in his face. Our Padre, or one of the Padres, actually got sent out on patrol with one of the platoons and he got in a contact and he had a huge backpack. He had a day sack on his back full of link and he fell on his back like a turtle while the guys were in a ditch returning fire and one of the guys looked round and there was the Padre with his arms and legs flying around. In the, I mean, it's funny, it's funny now. But <laughs> not the, the time, Padre yeah. what he'd be signing up for. The Padre was not impressed, let's say that. The company commander got a few choice words when he finally got back to the company club, but <laughs> definitely. But I, yeah, you're right. and. Um, for me also, you know, you can't, as a, as a forward deployed infantry 
regiment, you know, who's, who's involved in kinetic operations and you've got limited resources, you've got people going out on R&R, you've got casualties that have already gone out, you're already stretched, you know, and then you've got platoons that are deployed to different areas and then you take over new areas and the company commander has to chop down the size of the platoons, put people together to fill that new compound and to dominate the ground, as it were, by day and night, you suddenly start to get really stretched, almost elasticated out, and that can have an effect and then you have to try as best as possible to keep the mental motivation of the guys and not to lose people as, as best you can to trauma let's say and keep them motivated and keep them in it because it's you know it's just like when they go it's effectively extra time on stag extra this extra work extra kit extra ammo for the other guys to carry and it becomes a burden but it's part of it's part of what operations like that are it's interesting though that even in world war ii an infantry company or an infantry battalion normally only ever did six weeks on the line and they're normally rotated out after six weeks for a couple of weeks in the rear and uh, certainly that was as you've just described in afghanistan that was never the case case you're in contact with the enemy pretty much for your full tour apart from your r&r yeah i mean i think the company it, within the first two weeks of our tour we were in 146 sigax just my multiple so 146 engagements in two weeks so if you can imagine in the day and sometimes in the evening that's continuous effective enemy fire on you on, on the ground or on the compound when you're in it so Is this that, a summer know, tour adam or a, a, a started a started september the tour so i'd say back end of the summer going into the winter so the first sort of three months were very kinetic on the tour the the second the fourth month kind of dwindled a bit until we started prodding into new areas where they didn't want us to be and they'd sort of react and come out and have a scrap with us and then the you know as as anything when there's no cover the taliban don't come out and play so for the winter then a lot of them probably go back over the passes into pakistan to the villages and whatever in the winter months right and they come back when when they can move around with a lot have a lot of freedom of action due to the natural cover that's provided for them especially in an area like nadi ali so you know nadi ali itself where we were based you've got kind of we were in an area called balakan so you've got if you look at Lashkagar, if you understand where Lashkagar is to the sort of north it's Lashkagar is like the capital city of Helmand province right and then to the north west of that you've got a large sort of green a large area of green in the desert basically that moves down from the northeast right the way across the northwest and down past the south of Lashkagar and that's basically because of a natural flow of water main body of water that moves through there and one section of that which is to the northwest of um, Lashkagar is Nadi Ali um, and where we were based so the whole regiment itself you had to the northeast slightly there was fob shortcut which was the battalion headquarters and then you had the rifle companies sort of placed out clockwise all around in the area you know and then basically where we were b company we were in the very north part of nadi ali the green zone and there was an area to the right called nalat Naglabad, Nagelabad Calais, rather, which was just north of Nadi Ali. And that was kind of the start of Free Parazeo. So there was sort of, there was the desert, let's say, and then, or the dash as they called it. There was a canal and then there's the green zone. And for, let's say, one to two, 1.5 to two kilometers from west to east, there, and then from north to south, about three kilometers, you've got sort of B Company, One Royal Irish's AO which is bordered by to the northeast by Free Parazeo and then to the southwest by another one of our rifle companies and to the south you've got battalion headquarters and another rifle company. So we sort of moved into that area just to the northeast of that area. As the desert started, you had the company headquarters, which was PB Pimmin. In there was the, you know, 
company HQ, um, some support elements. You had the CQMS or the company quartermaster who was essentially, as you guys know, but for the listeners in charge of all the stores, uh, getting out everything to all the platoons on the ground, like ration resupplies, ammo resupplies, lock stock, whatever they needed. And yet, and you had sort of the quick reaction force under the company sergeant major that was in there, vehicle born, could deploy out to, in some cases, situations on the ground. But unfortunately, a lot of the MSRs were ID'd by the Taliban. Um, so it's hard. It, you know, vehicle manoeuvre was quite difficult. Um, to the south of PB Pimmon, then, um, there's a route that goes down. There's a major junction. So we tended to be as platoons placed on major junctions on MSRs to dominate that area. And you provide sort of ground domination patrols around that area and try and keep that route open as much as possible. That was one part of your the requirement for you operationally. So there was a platoon in there um, and we were east of them, approximately two junctions. Um, so we moved into a place called Shingle Calais. So basically, um, as you guys probably remember from doing tours, when you go to take over a platoon house anywhere on operations what happens generally is the command the incoming commander will go in 24 hours before his men and basically conduct what is known as sort of a handover and the handover essentially is you spending time with the commander inside the compound map briefs talking about everything the situation on the ground what's going on the local population as much information as he can really get to you enemy action you know getting up on the walls with him or in the sangers and him briefing you on enemy firing points that kind of and spending some time where possible to get out on patrol you know so when i got in there there's you got the scott i think it was one scots um outgoing the tired they're very kinetic or you've got attachments artillery attachments to them they're just outright refusing to go out on patrol everyone's you could sense really that all the guys that were there were mentally done and they were ready to go home and nobody was really wanting to take any major risks at this stage so you know, i was kind of given the, the Lance Corporal there and about eight guys to go out on patrol. And when we went out on the patrols themselves, you know, I was expecting to hopefully cover quite a bit of ground, but they took me kind of probably 100 metres north, then west, south, and then back into the compound, hugging irrigation ditches, staying very close to cover and getting back in. And then that, that kind of that gave me a bit of a picture. And while we were in there, and also before we went down with all the imp briefs, this was the most kinetic platoon house in the regiment they'd only been in there just shy of a week um and you know as as i was sort of sitting eating with the guys they pointed out on the wall on the on the wall of one of the internal buildings in the compound that basically an rpg had been fired and come over perfectly in and just hit the wall above where the guys were eating scoff there's a small compound of about let's say i'm just looking at it on the map now to refresh my memory but about sort of 30 meters by 20 meters if that and you've got walls that are approximately let's say 15 feet high and it's made of um, straw and cow pat but it's thick you know they're about a meter and a half thick they're solid they can take definitely they can take a hit from rpgs they can take a hit from small arms fire and what the guys have done in that compound is they've essentially built up two we call them sangers but they're for all intensive purposes watchtowers on two apexes of that compound so one in the northeast one in the southwest and you know the way you build them up is you build them up with sandbags and you crisscross them and then you use what to a certain level so double layered so by double layered i mean front to back so you've got extra protection um, and then you use what's known as constantina wire which kind of looks a little bit like the soldering iron wire for the listeners and you use that to sort of secure it even further then six foot pickets tied into that some hard cover 
i.e. metal sheets that the CQMS had provided them, and then sandbags further on top of that. And then you would put camouflage nets and a bit of a backdrop with other sandbags hanging down, empty sandbags to kind of break up the silhouette from an outside looking in perspective of guys that are there. And the reason you need to obviously break up those silhouettes is because the enemy are known for having sharpshooters. They can get quite close in the green zone because of the large amount of high-level cover that's provided by the foliage. The term sharpshooter and sniper is used a lot, thrown about a lot. Yeah, of course. uh, Were these guys genuinely quite good? Had a guy shot in the helmet in a super sanger from probably close to a kilometre away. We were having in the other area Maz Roof that we moved up to we were having shots taken at the Sanger aperture in the, at night <laughs> with a yeah. 762 long range rifle we had definitely had an individual in the group of the enemy fighters that we were dealing with who was highly trained and skilled in in long range um shooting for sure because he was he hit a guy in the body armor he hit a guy in the helmet and these are guys that are in sangers with quite small apertures with you know it's very dark it's hard to see them so it takes a particular skill set i would say to be able to identify that and then also hit that at range definitely and you know these are foreign fighters for sure we obviously killed foreign fighters from Pakistan and and you know outside of outside of Afghanistan definitely so yeah that was the situation my guys came in the next day they arrived they kind of bedded them in as, as was the standard the outgoing guys left get them up basically on the walls and you on all the walls and you give them a breakdown of the ground that's the first thing and then bed them in get people on rotation on sentry then you just start to plan uh, what needs to happen so we, we have like a small room where I slept which had the what we call the um, command room so the raid there'd be a radio in there that was direct contact to company headquarters um, I made a point of adding also handheld radios you know the commander's radios have got extra ones and put them in each sanger for when when engagements would happen so that the person who was um or the second man inside each sanger could send a contact report straight away as opposed to having to shout down or call over on a PRR to whoever was in in the in the command in the command room let's say so that commander could then get up and be a part of that engagement and start to coordinate more effective fire maybe think about utilizing mortars or whatever if we needed to at that stage of, of the battle intensified enough and then what we needed to do really was get out on the ground and conduct at least two foot patrols a day it was about ground domination as it was where that compound was we were sort of directly on the northwest of a of a cross junction that went from east to west and then south to north pretty much exactly like that but there was an area to the right that to the direct east of us it was called the red wedge and the reason it was called the red wedge is because the way the ground broke down as you looked at it on the map it kind of formed like a big v so about two kilometers to the south of us was the start of the v and it ran from south to north and south to east west and really opened up towards a town called or a little calais or small which is a village essentially called nagelabad calais and that was kind of taliban headquarters they they knew that they had a lot of freedom of movement in that sort of um, in that ground and they you know they really utilized that and they operated out of that town and they moved first thing in the morning down in and around our compound north south and east and west and basically utilized routes in and out that they used all the time to get in and take on our compound or take on our patrols and as i said within the first two weeks we had sort of 146 major engagements um it was very intense let's say were you within an artillery umbrella basically going out on patrol i had in in the patrol the breakdown of it as i would have my lead man who was the valid man who 
basically was carrying a, a metal detector, let's say, uh, and, and it's called the Valin in military terms. And he would be point man because he would scan the ground with the Valin as he was patrolling. Then I would have a GPMG gunner, which is a 7.62 machine gun carried by an individual um, that can fire 700 rounds a minute at a rate of 25 rounds a minute, a normal rate of fire and 100 rounds a minute at rapid. Then myself, the commander, then directly behind me be the interpreter because he's got what would be the ICOM scanner. So the ICOM scanner, essentially, that interpreter can listen to the Taliban talking on the radio, brief you in English exactly what they're saying. So you kind of know what's going on on the ground, that they can see you, if they can't, if they're going to take action against you. So it gives you a little bit of a heads up, kind of a bit of a hairs on the back of your neck fix situation as well, because you kind of know that you're about to get ambushed, which is not great. But also it's great because you know you're about to get ambushed. So you're kind of mentally ready. And then behind him, I would have a an MFC, mortar fire controller. And then behind him... Um, in the patrol, in the patrol, I would have an artillery attachment um, from Seven Power RHA, who is attached with with one of his signalers as well. And the the reason for them is obviously mortars coming from company headquarters, very good asset to utilise if in a heavy engagement, which we were. And then artillery, obviously um, precision as well, with the 105 gun battery back in battalion headquarters, which is very very efficient and utilised a lot. Uh, especially by my patrol. Um, and then further back, more riflemen carrying certain equipment that we can't speak about, LMG gunners, i.e. light machine gunners, and then the rear end of the patrol, for me, would always be the patrol 2IC. And I'd have a Lance Corporal mixed somewhere in the middle there to be able to control fire as I was sort of dealing with the wider situation of the battle, communicating with company headquarters, managing casualties, whatever. So as an example then, the, the first major engagement we had, we had a couple of small ones before, but to talk about the first one, the biggest one, uh, in the beginning was we were literally out on patrol approximately five minutes and uh, we left the compound we crossed into the east of the canal so over the main msr into the east of the canal we banked um following it you always stick close to irrigation ditches because if something happens it provides a bit of you know the best piece of cover that you've got possible uh, because an irrigation ditch can be about three to five foot deep and quite wide and quite slopey banks on it as well which provides a good sort of position for you to be in if you're firing uh, returning fire and, and also wide enough that you can move up and down it among your men if you need to um, and as we came sort of between there was like two compounds and broke out there was a couple of compounds to the northeast of us about 40 meters away and we got opened up on by a massive massive weight of fire it was a killing group essentially so it was a planned ambush it was very close kinetic battle we took cover straight away and then started to try and positively identify where they were everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. We picked up or ID'd a couple of positions very close to us and we started putting down, like half the call sign was still behind the compound and my 
front half was kind was effectively pinned down. Um, I had my point man Andy and the machine gunner and Boydie, another guy who moved in front of me with an LMG, who put there uh, trying to put a weight of fire down. Um, I put Andy on flank protection, and basically two Taliban came round very quickly to our left side as I look at the enemy firing points to the right that we've been engaged from and tried to fight through our position. So what they'd essentially done is decided that they'd have a killing group and then a kind of a cutoff that would come through rapidly and engage and try and take us out. Luckily, Andy was on it and opened fire on them. I'm not sure still to this day if he hit one, but they definitely kind of took cover and disappeared. And then we tried to peel right out of the engagement. So I basically gave the command for a heavyweight, for a rapid fire, basically, and then Pill right, pill right, pill right. Everybody started to pill right. So Andy, then Boydie beyond me. But then as they broke out to the uh, south as we were extracting, there was another killing group, two RPKs, so 7.62 machine guns. So what they'd done is they, what we we do, as you guys remember being in the British Army, they laid out a perfectly set central killing group ambush with a left and right cutoff with the, with the intent of sort of, you know, us trying to extract and getting caught out by one of these. So we went firm, and I basically just said on the, to the to the company headquarters that we we're pinned. We've been overmatched uh, with fire, uh, enemy fire, and what was going on. And then the the artillery, the AC that was attached to me, called in seven rounds danger close artillery. So basically, we had seven rounds of 105 uh, coming on top of the killing group, danger close, 40 meters away, which was, a, you know, you can imagine an experience. Oof, yeah, I, you know, the ground shook, lifted me off the ground a few times and then there was just this silence it was most eerie feeling thing dust kind of started to settle and obviously the enemy had been completely neutralized and everything just fell completely silent we just took a cup i took a minute to catch my breath look around you know told the guys 50 50 change mags all that prepared to move we're going to move back the way we came the, you know the safe route because we've clicked we've we already know it's clear because we patrolled it as quick as possible back to the compound which we were back in the compound in about three and a half minutes we were literally that close so that was our first major engagement with the enemy and it was, it was you know they let us know they gave us a welcome in a big way for sure were you ever pushed to do any sort of battlefield damage assessment or was it just too dangerous and you were never definitely i mean i was very conscious about where we were or where my guys were putting mortar rounds and artillery and a couple of times i'd stopped cancelled out through the company commander the msc if he decided he wanted to drop something on a compound we were being engaged from because there was a there's a moral piece to this always and i knew that the taliban would just go into a compound take it over there could be a family in there there was that always in the back of my mind you know i never ever once allowed that to happen i just stopped it it was one time where when we took our a casualty aaron the MFC wanted to drop around on the compound where we've been where we were being engaged from and i just said basically put it on the outside of the compound more of a distraction than anything which we did instead and that blast was enough to put the enemy off to for them to cease fire and begin their own extraction which i think is important you can utilize utilize these weapon systems not just to to neutralize and kill enemy but also to put them off basically you can call in fast air we had you know with an emergency fast emergency close air support but i've not not wanted to have them drop an ordinance of you know utilize them to fly low hard and fast over the enemy positions and that's enough for them to say do you know what let's live to fight another day and go back to wherever um, and that worked you know and there's there was that 
briefing to the guys before we went out on the ground. It's I think they call it yeah, courageous restraint was the term. Yeah, that was uh, General McChrystal. That's the he one, brought yeah. that in. And I mean, you've got to be conscious as a commander and even as the lowest level rifleman about what you're doing. You might be in a battlefield, but you're still among populations, populace. You're among communities. You're among families that are living in compounds that have children that have lives that are trying to go about their lives as best as possible while this situation is going on around them. You know, they're caught mm-hmm. up in the middle of it. That doesn't just because you're being um, in heavy engagements doesn't mean that gives you the right to, to bypass their safety, you know. So, yeah, you try to be as conscious as possible and really think about what you're doing before you make decisions. That helps me sleep better at night now as well, knowing that I did everything possible as a commander to, to protect the people as well as my men. Young, young soldiers take a lead from the likes yourself as well, I think. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's I can't I don't want to talk too much about it, but there was there's a couple of situations that happened with people, men that I've seen. You know that unfortunately, civilian did lose his life in one, and I think that moment of what happened, you know, is total accident. But the bit that led up to it happening could have not happened, and that person for sure still now loses a lot of sleep over it. And that's what I mean about that as well. You have to be aware of the ramifications of every action that you take and not only because of what it can do to people but because of what you as a person have to be aware of that you will have to handle and manage and know for the rest of your life that you did that and it affects people in a really bad way especially those that make the wrong decision you know so yes that was kind of the anyway the first engagement the the second one i want to talk about really was the first casualty aaron this was a young lad who was a sniper so in one of the in one of the patrol actions before two of the guys got in another ambush got shot in the body armor they were all right but you know they couldn't go out on patrol there was some slight bruising so wasn't taking my sniper Aaron out I was utilizing him for top cover over oversight and stuff but at that stage I had no option and um, so his first patrol out unfortunately uh Aaron became a casualty but yeah he came out and he went out as the point man and this particular time until I see he was on as company commander or standing company commander while the OC was resting and he told us to do a patrol to the southeast it became kind of evident that the east of our area was definitely very very red you want you definitely wanted always some kind of depth when you went into there or another platoon in close proximity because the numbers of enemy in there were they could get close to what you had on the ground and you always want to kind of you know think about having a three-to-one situation when you're taking the enemy on or going into an area and you know yourselves as you build up the intelligence over time you start to understand the area the situation that dictates essentially how many people or men you send out onto the ground or how many call signs in order to make sure you have got that ability to one either take them on if you need to or get yourselves out of there comfortably by having mutual support Um, and mutual support is something that was you banged into us for years in the military especially in the northern ireland days so yeah we went out on patrol we headed south there was another platoon that had come out from that platoon house to the west as i said and they were sort of operating just north of where we were going when we headed south Um, i remember sort of looking to my left and seeing a an individual kind of look at us and drop his drop his rake at the time as we left the compound and move off out of sight and it kind of stuck in my mind and i thought that guy definitely 100 percent is just conducting recce and he's sort of blending in he disappeared and we moved down and we kind of got to the bottom of this sort of on the east side of the canal at the end of a compound and there was a sort of a natural crossing point that we wanted to get back across the canal onto the west side of it putting us south of our compound with the ability to sort of 
clockwise direction, work our way up through the fields and irrigation ditches back towards our compound. So that was kind of the set route that I planned for that patrol. Unfortunately, so what happened was I put a gunner out covering to the east one of the, and then basically said that Aaron move yourself across and the minute he got up and exposed himself he took a burst of machine gun fire through the legs and fell and he fell right into the middle of the highest piece of the part of the ground so he was laid and he was in agony but he was exposed as well we kind of had only had a very small part of our patrol out exposed and able to put fire down so I ordered the men to peel right uh, along the irrigation ditch in order to get more weapon systems firing onto those en- those enemy positions that had engaged us as we had identified them. And Aaron sort of rolled himself into the canal. I think he just looked for a piece of cover, saw that that was it. He wasn't enjoying the fact he was getting shot at, let alone the fact that he'd had two rounds through the leg, 7.62. But unfortunately... He rolled himself into a canal that was about five foot deep and fast flowing. I try not to go into too much detail, but Aaron started drowning and it became a big problem straight away. So I grabbed Chris, the medic, by the scruff of his neck and come with me. And we both ran and jumped into the canal with all our kit on and we were submerged. And I got to... Uh, Jay Orzy to control the battle from a firefight perspective and we quickly saw that Aaron had a catastrophic hemorrhage to the leg and we had to deal with that I obviously was stood in the water giving a contact report and also a CAS rep a CAS rep is obviously is a casualty report when you're essentially giving what we called a nine liner and you're going through a series of steps where you're briefing the company headquarters on the state of the casualty how serious it is what priority is and he was a cat alpha which is uh, a you know a categorized as the highest priority because of the catastrophic hemorrhage to the leg the fact that his femur had been broken into multiple pieces so yeah basically we, we controlled the bleed put a tourniquet on him and we got a couple of the guys to help us drag him out of this canal and if, as i'm stood now i can look up i can see still the canal was like fully arm's length to the top to pull myself out of it so getting aaron out quite a job and then what we had to contend with was getting him across the road and then into another ditch which we quickly found out was knee deep mud and then across a field which was about just between knee and ankle deep wet mud to a hls site that i'd spotted and also at the same time a firefight going on and me trying to take some of those guys and formulate all-round protection for the hls i really did think about this in that moment there was a range i was on in war cup years and years ago and i remember thinking it can't be like this it was horrible it was a kazivak i was knee deep in mud and i was blowing out of my backside and i thought it'll never be like this <laughs> and in that moment it was worse and i actually thought about that day on that range in that moment i was dragging aaron through the mud and thinking god all right fair enough and um yeah that's so it's, it's interesting though isn't it that yeah. you can have all the high-tech equipment in the world but for an infantryman or a dismounted <laughs> soldier fitness yeah. is still it's the yeah. top priority isn't it definitely i mean i I prided myself on my fitness quite a lot of my guys did but you need to be robust and very fit and strong in that environment especially you're operating at altitude which is another important factor but yeah so we popped the smoke two apaches rocked up cleared the area which made the enemy firing drop down and then the chinook came in these guys can land a chinook a chinook is obviously the double rotated helicopter that part of the merts to the emergency uh, medical emergency response team that deploys out to pick up casualties on the ground um, and that landed on the sixpence we put Aaron on said goodbye got out and then patrolled back as quick as we could to platoon house when that helicopter had left the one phase i want to talk about with this is as a commander on the ground there's a certain element of loneliness in this in these moments because what you have to do is you have to get it back keep the guys out get them to get a brew the first thing you need to do is go and collapse that guy's kit collapse his bed collapse all his photos of his family put it in a bag put it in your room go out to the guys then go through the debrief which is 
sit down, have a tea, have a cigarette, talk to the guys about what happened, get them to explain different phases of it and really get them to kind of open up about it. And then you send people back into their routine of cleaning weapons, cooking rations, whatever. And I think as a commander, there's that you've always got to be, there's a line, isn't there, between you and the men always. And you've got to be a certain way and you've got to be, got to keep your emotions in, in check always and just be kind of, I don't know how you, I always wondered how did I come across to them when I wasn't really talking emotionally to them about stuff. Because you'd hear the guys talking about it to each other, but you try and distance yourself from that to be able to still be effective as a commander. And, you know, you have to, somebody has to take responsibility for the mental state of the of the patrol and making sure that there's no outside things that can impact on that. And one part of that is removing every trace of an individual when they become a casualty or get killed. Did, you, uh, did you do much um, trauma training before you went out? Trim. Obviously, the yeah. trim, if you remember, I uh, mean, across all the ranks, really did go hard over with trim. I would say it was wasn't a lot, a lot. It was a couple of briefs. Let's say it was one on pre-deployment, and there was one by one of the trim practitioners who was one of the company sergeant majors before we deployed, and he was talking about the brain being a bank, and you can take so much money out until your brain skint, and that was it really. And I think this was kind of probably the beginnings years of that process starting to really come into place so but what you described there adam was trim in effect yeah you know yeah, you're going round, you're getting the yeah. guys to talk about it you know getting off the chest yeah i mean i think personally for me i've always thought that you need if they express and talk about it there and collectively share their viewpoint on it they can they immediately start to realize that everybody else was there everybody else saw it everybody else how they felt about it you know the younger lads would definitely talk about how they felt about it with a cigarette in their mouths and it, it, mm-hmm. in that immediate moment by doing that you're not you don't pause that trauma traumatic situation for them but you enable them to move on from it yeah you process during, it during the tour yeah, yeah. i mean later yeah. there's much more addressing of that to be dealt with when they get home but you you know you want to keep them effective battlefield that's the most important thing not trying to sound too cold but as a unit you need to be efficient so yeah and there's also what have it being conscious of the long-term ramifications of what it can do in post-traumatic stress and stuff like that so there's that so we basically were this area we were sort of engaged continuously became kind of overbearing at one point to the point where we were just always in an engagement we had the special forces the sas dispatched one of their snipers out to us to conduct some reconnaissance to spend time with us as they were looking at our area for an ops box because you know it was it was unworkable at this stage and he came out and his experience was yeah he was very much in shock the time that he was with us uh we went out on a patrol to the south we got engaged we extracted to the north we got engaged three times we got ambushed in one patrol and we were literally at no point more than 200 meters away from the compound and then the last part we got pinned down from north to south by omnidirectional ambush and what he was doing is because he bought his sniper rifle he was up with you know one of my guys in the sanger and we were like right they're getting engaged from the south so he was running to the south sanger for the north sanger getting in there guys have extracted they've been engaged from the north and he was like for god's sake and he was climbing down the ladder running back to the north sanger getting up in that trying to engage and then by that point you know we'd, we'd moved into cover and i got back in and i said what's your analysis and he just looked at me <laughs> and went you guys are really <laughs> under the cosh here aren't you and he said we'll have to do something about this and that was kind of that was it really there's a sort of a principle applied to tanks and armored vehicles firepower protection and mobility and they, they normally say pick any two you know looking at you're describing your patrol makeup you know you had gpmg gunners you had body armor i'd probably say you had the firepower and the protection from the body armor that would degrade the mobility do you think body armor was more of a hindrance out there and you'd been better off with that mobility or do you think 
the body armor was useful. Bear in mind the kinetic environment you're in. The body armor was useful because, from experience, the side plates especially. So the side plates were essentially the old Northern Ireland front and back plates. Um, and then you had the front plate, the back plate, the side plates. And then you had the Kevlar flexible body armor underneath that inside this and your magazine pouches or whatever attached to either your body armor or belt rig. But I saw guys get shot in the side plates, two guys in one patrol, and it saved their lives. It went through the magazine and into the side plate, 7.62 rounds in both cases. And that was enough for me to think, you know, we need this. It's essential. It's saving lives. What is the burden? And it's not a burden. It's a necessity is the amount of load you're carrying. You know, you've got a radio, spare batteries. Each guy's carrying three or 400 7.62 link which is heavy enough then you've got your 556 link extras for the lmg gunners you've got magazines 10 magazines a man you've got grenades you've got smoke grenades you've got underslung grenades you've got ways of what do you reckon you're carrying 100 pounds 90 pounds yeah yeah Yeah. i mean getting up off of your knee on patrol was hard but there's this when you when you get engaged the adrenaline that you feel carries you you become very strong and fit (laughs) for a short period of time because you're in danger you know as an example the handover patrol so basically the company headquarters said after i think six weeks or so we're going to rip you out we're going to send you to masroof so masroof platoon houses to the north which was at the top of the dash the desert sorry the top of the green zone right on the apex of the desert that that platoon is going to come down and relief in place with you because you guys have been hammered and we want you to have a break from combat it's quite a funny story this um we basically my guys went out his he came in with his guys after, after he spent 24 hours with me his guys came in rather i took him out on patrol we got in a massive ambush straight away it was a sustained engagement the a and a were involved with us as well i had one of my medics or the medic sorry from the other patrol that had come down to join us got pinned against the wall and he froze because as we were sort of patrolling basically we were patrolling back towards our compound between two compounds and we got engaged from the rear from the southeast somewhere and it was like this moment of you don't know where it's coming from and even i sort of stood and left and had this sort of weird jumpy on my feet moment as i tried to figure out where i needed to go and we all suddenly moved to the irrigation ditch just in front of us like 10 meters away formed the baseline started returning fire and i looked half right and i saw tom the medic kind of frozen like a the silhouette you know the yellow the white lines they used to put around the a comedy dead body like that against the wall not moving at all and you could see the rounds hitting the wall where they were shooting at him and he was froze there for a good one and a half minutes until we got one of the guys to go over and grab him uh, effing come with me you know and pull him back to us and we put enough fire down for that to be able to happen and that traumatized him for the rest of that one situation completely wiped him out for the rest of the tour he was mentally gone straight away mm-hmm. it can be it was enough and i can imagine what that can do to somebody you know he didn't know what to do it's first major engagement for him and it was a hairy a big one and yeah that that was also a bit of me i said to the commanders who went back in the compound well there's your handover patrol mate what do you think and he just looked at me and was like i'll see you in six weeks you'll probably be coming back to rip me out again and i actually went up that day with company headquarters round to Masroof after I'd left and I got into Masroof and this and there'd been no engagements there at all not one as the company headquarters left that that platoon house got engaged by multiple firing positions I think that one engagement we counted 17 firing points heavy just, just as you turned up honest to god you couldn't have timed it any better and I, <laughs> I, I remember the company commander was obviously in the in the vehicle and he could hear the rate of fire in that engagement went on for a couple of hours we fired 13,762 we had 60 GPMGs 
engaging positions in all directions. We were taking a heavy weight of fire. The two guys... Starting to get a better name for yourself. When people want you to come to the position. I remember the company commander on the company net screaming, you're going to destabilize the whole town. And I was honestly, I was thinking, what do you want me to do about it? You want to talk to the Taliban? So it's not nothing to do with me, you know? So, and that was a big, big engagement. And that was kind of, I think what they'd done is they'd spent some time focusing on shingle and they'd bought the the galabag calais was literally just a kilometer and a half east of this patrol base um, and they decided to focus on that at some point it just conveniently happened to be the same day that i kind of went into there we sort of then but that became a focal point as well so you had shingle that was a focal point and you had our platoon house that was a massive focal point and that was being engaged by day and by night so in that platoon house we had a compound that we were in which was quite a large compound multiple buildings inside that was at the almost the apex of the town uh, on the northeast but directly across from us there'd been a super sanger built from the engineers it was very it was you know it was 30 40 foot high super sanger they'd built enough to get a full section in to get eyes on in depth was essentially the way they decided to build it but unfortunately the lay of the land the way the engineers built the hesco around it it dropped down on the east side so essentially all the ground to the east could see into the entire compound so the guys were going up on up on patrol up on stag if we're all right to a certain point but then the enemy started engaging the guys with machine gun fire that were going on stag to relieve the other guys so we had to build what was called a rat run which is basically flattened hesco with six foot pickets and build like a chicane rat run down into the dead ground so that the guys mm-hmm. could walk up onto stag without getting opened up on um, so yeah it was it was very and they bought in a recoilless rifle which as you guys know is a heavy round a big massive rifle basically that can fire a heavy projectile and they were utilizing a recoilless rifle at night onto the sanger they were opening up on the, the super sanger machine gun fire at night in the day one of the guys got hit in the body in the helmet in the body armor and there was um i remember being asleep and waking up to a massive weight of fire ran straight away the a young platoon commander that had been put in with this platoon as well uh, under me brand new pretty much uh, Nathan Reed great guy I'm still friends to this day with Nathan uh, he was in the, the little control room and I again as soon as I got there as part of my takeover I put radios to talk to company headquarters in every uh, little Sanger or little watchtower I got up to the Sanger and the two guys were laid down in the Sanger on the floor screaming and there was basically the, the amount of fire that had hit the watchtower they were in had deteriorated most of the protection so they were literally just laying down and there was rounds like missing them by inches the only thing that could be done was just to get in there and motivate them to get up and fight and the way to do that was to get on the gun and identify a position and start putting a weight of fire down and also take control of the other positions we had on the personal world radio and start to give fire control orders and really start to try and organize what was going on a bit better have somebody down below running ammunition round to different ones like magazines and whatever to you know to keep the battle going and to keep us getting a sustained weight of fire down but to also motivate the men be on fear because that was a massive engagement there was a heavy heavy weight of fire on us and that was chris the medic and andy andy who's not here anymore in that situation and that night you know got everybody down uh, got everybody in we went up and we rebuilt that and i moved that position and made it an extra depth of protection and moved it more central and went and checked all the defensive positions and reinforced everything tried to give a bit more protection and a bit more of a lack of silhouette in, in each of those in each of those towers overnight but then uh, one of the guys i won't say his name because he listened but one of the guys came to me that night in attachment and broke down into tears and he was beyond bringing him back he was gone mentally completely we just said i can't anymore he fell on the floor at my feet and he was completely broken and i basically i tried pulling around and i could see that he needed medical help he was at a point where his trauma was that intense that he 
had to be extracted immediately and put into probably a hospital, basically. It was that severe. Um, so I had him extracted the very next morning by company headquarters. Uh, you know, we speak sometimes. I think still now he's affected. Definitely, definitely got heavy, heavy PTSD. And There's it, no real training for that, is there? No. I mean, what had happened in Masroof was there was a, a series of massive engagements and ambushes that, you know, that led up to that one situation was we had to go out because there was an IED found on the road near just south of that Nagalabad Calais that I spoke about and there was battle group um, quick reaction force which was formed of the tank regiment elements of our company that had gone out to support them so you had kind of seven armoured vehicles stuck on the road MSR but not being engaged yet because of an IED so definitely with the Nagalabad Calais being there it was a come on right for sure and what they were waiting for, now I look back and it was dismounted troops because shooting armoured vehicles with RPGs and 7.62, you're not going to do that much damage. Um, so we got told to go out from Masroof and put out some depth protection in a, to, for them to be able to get AO out, detonate the device, whatever. So we got near them. We had to back out of an area because we came across three IEDs perfectly laid out. It was like they'd set it. The way I look at it is they'd set those three IEDs by looking at the ground and saying, right, What's that patrol going to do? It's going to go there. Okay, they're going to find that. Okay, so what are they going to do? They're going to back up there and go that way. Right, put an IED in there. But what if they find that? They might go there. And they literally did that. And as our ta- as we followed our tactics, we hit all three of those IEDs, found it, luckily, and then backed. I said, guys, back 300 meters. Let's do a proper dogleg around this. And we did that. And we eventually got out to the call sign and moved to the north of them, coming round. And we were going to get ourselves in the canal near them and provide some sort of protection there but as we were moving across to the canal the whole call sign got caught in the open and that it was again it was a well prepared ambush there was a massive weight of fire it was about platoon strength i think that took us on a couple of the guys in the front end we fire maneuvered but the rest of the patrol just hit the ground and laid down and the problem we had was they were just being shot at by a heavy weight of fire and then we had over our shoulders we had seven armored vehicles that just began to pid fire positions and open up so we're talking underslung grenade launches a couple of 50 car machine guns gpmgs weight of fire going each way that was really really intense and i was trying to put my head up to id where the guys were to try and get myself across a bit to get them under control and bring them back and every time i put my head up i was getting shot at by a sharpshooter so i think he identified my antenna that i was the ground commander was trying to take me out and guys kept shouting at me every time i put my head up because sometimes i didn't hear the round because i was so focused on trying to you know control the rest of my multiple and get them to fire a maneuver down and you know shouting at them <laughs> across to them that you, you kind of get tunnel vision and you don't hear when somebody's really shooting at you and the guys were like get the fnl down that's like one of them came over and pulled me down and said just stay the hell down like you're about to get your head took off mate and that was a really a mad situation and it went on for a well over an hour you know of that we finally got the guys back into cover um we in the end ended up mounting in the vehicles and moving away from that situation back to battalion headquarters um, and then from there i got sort of moved back with my patrol back to maz roof all that there there was a lot more engagements but those were the major key ones that really stand out to me and that was the before phase of when we started to decide as a company or as a battle group right this area needs to become an ops box and we need to start pushing out into the red wedge and doing company operation dominating the ground and getting in the face of the enemy and you know doing advance to contacts and that kind of thing and that's the next phase that really started to happen that's it for the first of a two-part podcast, with the second part being out next week. Thanks to Adam for coming on the podcast, and to you, the listener, for your continued support and suggestions. Please keep them coming in, and our email and social media links are at the bottom of the show notes. 
You can find us on all the usual suspects, including Instagram, Facebook, YouTube and Twitter. And if you've downloaded us from iTunes or Spotify and like the podcast, it would be great if you could leave us a review there or anywhere you get your podcasts from. Thanks again to Nick Beale for his continued support and sponsorship to the series and offering technical support through his company ISAR. See you next time on the Unconventional Soldier. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.